You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. So I'm going to move right into our teaching text. And the word this morning is coming from Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. For those of you, I was really random. Um, for those of you who are new, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the discipleship pastor, and I have the distinct pleasure of starting our new series entitled The Good Way. As Meg just mentioned, The Good Way is also a, a course that runs twice a year that serves as like an on-ramp into what we, membership or belonging in our community. And it's kind of, these next few weeks will be an encapsulation of that content. Um, talking about eight practices that we see observed in the life of Jesus to help orient us towards the activity and presence of God. And so today, we're going to take a look at, not, we're not going to get to those practices today. We're going to look at what it means to live intentionally with our lives kind of oriented and activated towards being attentive to God and his movement in the world. So before we do that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Sounds good? Father, we want your good way. We, we, we recognize that there's a lot of ways offered in our culture, in our society, God, but those ways in the end don't lead to life. We want your way, God. We want those things that will draw us closer to you and make us more attentive to your movement and activity, God. I pray that today you put us on the path to life, that you would meet us here and speak to us through the teaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. So um, I'm married and actually it's my wife's birthday. She's actually in the back doing slides. And she hated every moment of that, which is why I did it. Um, but my father-in-law, um, his name is Tony. Um, he lives in Long Island. Um, he grew up in Queens, and then, like a lot of Queens people do, they move out to Long Island. And he moved out to Long Island, and a few years ago, he got really into gardening. He has a bit of a green thumb, and a 
when, when my wife and I had first got married, I had started grad school, and we kind of moved in with them to save some money because, you know, the city's expensive. And so we moved in with them, and it's about at this time his, like, gardening kick kicked in. Now, his backyard, he's a pretty decent backyard in his home in Long Island. And when I first moved in, I didn't kind of see how the gardening project was going to work. Um, the, it was a little overgrown. He has four kids, and so you can imagine you accumulate things, backyard things, when you have four kids. And so he gets like some rusted bikes and some like deflated soccer balls. And all in all, it had potential, but it was going to need a lot of care and work. But over the two years we actually lived with my in-laws, I began to see this transformation. The bikes were thrown away. The soccer balls were finally popped and tossed in the trash. The grass was mowed, and he began to like, build things. He used to build, began to build like raised beds. He began to put chicken wire, because there's like little rabbits in Long Island, and they would eat that stuff. So he began to put chicken wire around the place he was marking for a garden. And, and slowly but surely, he had a full-fledged garden where he would like be able to go out, or we're going to make Italian food tonight, he would go out and like pick some basil. He was growing tomatoes and potatoes. He just had the whole thing going on. And all it took was a little intention and a little cultivation. A little intention and a little cultivation. Now, I bring up that story because it's a poignant example of our teaching text. Humanity's first task given by God is to be gardeners. God forms this garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man he had formed. And then he gave him instruction to till and to keep it. Humanity's first task is that of gardener. Someone whose job is to be intentional, to cultivate the soil. Throughout the biblical narrative, gardens are essential theme. We see them reoccurring throughout the biblical narrative, so much so that the story of the scriptures begins in a garden and ends in a garden city. In ancient Near Eastern cosmology, uh, cosmology being how they understood the world to work, mountain gardens were sacred spaces where the divine and human world intersected. And so when in the ancient Near East, when they would build temples, including the one designed in the Old Testament, they were meant to evoke gardens. It's why when you, if you ever go into your Old Testament and read about the, um, the construction of the tabernacle and the temple, you know, they, 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 they carve pomegranates out of gold. There's, there's this intentional design that this sacred space invokes a garden because gardens were seen as these intersections between the human and the divine world. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because when we talk about gardens in Scripture, we're talking about God's presence. What we learn in the rest of the Genesis narrative is that God would frequent the garden and dwell with Adam and Eve. And this lets us know a key thing about the human condition, is that humanity was created for interaction with God. That we were created to dwell in a, a kind of a mishmash of sacred and mundane space where we dwelt and the eternal dwells. We were made for this reciprocal relationship with God sharing his life-giving energy and purpose towards us and humanity receiving it and showing it out into the creation as the image of God. And so we learn something. That Adam is placed in the garden not simply just to work it, but to enjoy the presence of God. But this might 
not make sense depending our understanding of the story of the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't know about you, when I grew up in church, right, God creates the world, and it's perfect, right? That's, that's at least what my Sunday school teacher taught me, that it was perfect, there's no need to add anything to it, the world was perfect as it was. But if that's the case, why does Adam have to till it? Why does Adam have to keep it? Right? If the world is perfect, if Eden is perfect, why the work? And so here we get to actually a tension that's implicit in the narrative. Not necessarily explicit, but it's implicit. Name that Eden was good, but it could be better. And so Adam's job was to take God's good creation and through his activity expand its borders and unlock in it that generative quality that occurs when the earth is given care and attention. That in the story... There's this understanding that Eden was not meant to stay in one place, but it is, that it, through cultivation and work, its borders are meant to expand until this sacred space filled the entire creation. And so God's invitation to Adam is to cultivate this sacred space, to make it more generative until finally it reached its generative potential. The garden needed a gardener. It needed cultivating, tilling, work. Why? So that it could reach the potential for which it was created. And see, it's the care and attention of the gardener is what separates wild growth from a garden. The earth is naturally generative. We know this. We understand this. We don't, the earth doesn't necessarily need human interaction to grow things. But at the same time, there's this understanding that when we give the earth care and attention, working with the earth and not against it, that it brings about even more so. That's actually, when we look historically at the, at the rise of human civilization, it's when humans begin to settle and make farms that civilization booms. Because there's, while you could subsist off hunting and gathering, there's something about tilling the soil that it produces more than it would on its own. And so that is what separates wild growth from a cultivated garden. Now we understand the gardener cannot make it rain, or he cannot cause the sun to shine, but he or she can work diligently to ensure that proper attention is given to that which he desires to grow. Now I share all this as a preface, because today we're going to talk about a rule of life. And a rule of life is simply that which orients us towards God a way of living and practice that shapes our lives and, and kind of moves it around the center, that, that which is God. And so the, in the, if the human task is to cultivate gardens, how does that look like for us now? Well, in the New Testament, the presence of God is no longer found in a garden or a temple, but the presence of God is found in us in human persons, those who have responded to the invitation of Jesus are said to be dwelt by his Holy Spirit. We have become the gardens in which God dwells. And so that means a new kind of tilling, a new kind of work, a new kind of care and attention is needed. No longer are we tending gardens, we are now tending to souls. That we are no longer tilling soil, we are tilling our hearts. And so the difference between a soul that is oriented towards God and his life-giving presence and kind of like a wild soul that hasn't seen kind of the activity and presence of God is the care and attention of the gardener. 
we have been called to partner with God in the tilling of our souls. And so we need a rule of life. We need something, just like a farmer needs his methods, he he needs his tools to bring about the generative activity of the farm or the garden. We need a rule of life, something that's going to intentionally cultivate our lives in response to the invitation of Jesus. Now, for many of you, the term rule of life might be new. And so let me break down where that comes from. So let's go back a few a thousand years or so into Christian history, and we meet a man named St. Benedict of Nursia. St. Benedict of Nursia was a monk, and he wanted to start a community of monks centered around two things, prayer and work, which is summarized in the Latin phrase ora et labora, prayer and work. And so he wrote this thing called St. Benedict's Rule. And St. Benedict's Rule was a rule of life by which these, this monastic community could order itself around the common life found in pursuing work and prayer together. That wisdom of having something that says, this is how I, myself, my community will respond to the gospel, is where we take our informa- inspiration of having a rule of life. Just like St. Benedict's community had this rule that made them attentive and aware and pointed towards the presence and activity of God, so we too as as a community at Oak Church Brooklyn have decided also to have a rule of life. This set of practices that says, as a community, we are going to respond to Jesus in this way. And whether we recognize it or not, we all have a rule of life. It's just not named or not. We all have rhythms And we all have intentions, and we all have practices we give ourselves to that orient our life in a specific direction. Whether we realize it or not, we, our lives have intention. We are doing something to our souls in the way we live. The question is, are are my rhythms and practices and habits orienting me towards God and his activity in the world? But for many of us, our spiritual lives might be like that of my father-in-law's backyard. It's a little overgrown. There's some weeds. There's some rabbits can I, you know, nibbling away at the cabbage. The t- tomatoes are kind of slumping on the ground. And what that really means, it doesn't mean your life isn't generative. It doesn't mean there's not life present. But we haven't given our souls the care and attention they deserve. We're kind of living with the idea of God circling around our lives rather than living our lives pointed at and centered on the person and work of Jesus. And just like my father-in-law's garden needed some care and attention, so too do our souls. Now, a rule of life is simply this. It's taking a vision of who I want to become an intention, making a commitment to become that person and identifying the means, the tools that will help us get there. This is kind of what encapsulates encapsulates a rule of life. For for St. Benedict, for the example we used earlier, St. Benedict said we want to be a people of prayer and work. That was his vision. And the monastic vow was the intention to be that people and then his Rhythms of prayer and daily reading of scripture and working was the means by which they started to become that people. This is what it means to have a rule of life, to say, Lord, who do you want me to become? 
making a commitment to say, God, I want to become that person by the power of your spirit and saying, but what tools will help me get there? For some of us, these aren't questions we've asked in a long time. The humdrum, everyday nature of life gets in the way and we just go through the motions without the intention of actually becoming the people God wants us to become. And so how do we have a rule of life? What does it mean to set up ourselves around rhythms and practices that orient us towards God? What does it mean to till and work the soil of our souls? Well, before I get to what a rule of life is properly, I want to talk about maybe some objections or misconceptions we might have towards a rule of life. The first one being this. For some of us, we hear rule of life and we think this. We think a rule of life is just another form of legalism. An arbitrary addition to the message of the gospel. Why do I need rules to tell me how to live my faith? If my faith is a work of grace and a a rule of life sounds a lot like what Paul railed against, an addition to the work of Jesus and the gospel. Well, my response would be this. A rule of life isn't an addition to, to the gospel, but it's how we're intentionally committed to live out the reality of the gospel as we see modeled in the life and teachings of Jesus. We might believe about the kingdom of God, we might believe in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, but how are we living that out practically? What separates our lives from our coworkers or our family members? There's this interesting component in that a lot of Western Christianity posits itself that the importance of what you need to do is you need to believe the right things and have the right checklist of doctrines. But then when we actually look at our lives, it looks no different from our neighbors. But if we look at the life and teachings of Jesus, it was all a call to action. It was all a call to a new way of living, a new way of relating to the world and to each other. And so if our lives look no different from those around us, the question is, are we actually living out the gospel? What a rule of life does, it says, Lord, I'm going to adopt these set of practices so my life actually looks different. So my priorities are actually different. So the way I shop and spend, the way I relate to other people, the way I handle conflict, the way I I, I make decisions, it's reflective of this thing I believe. A lot of us have orthodoxy, but we don't have orthopraxy. We have right belief, but we don't have right practice. There's there's a division, there's a a gap between the head and the heart, between between what we say we believe about God and the work of our hands. A rule of life is a tool to help us bridge that gap. Another objection might be this. A rule of life is just like any other self-help program. It, it ultimately relies on human strength and isn't spiritually transformative. There are a lot of 12 steps, do one, two, three things here to make your life better. Actually, our bookstores are littered with them. The self-help section grows every year. And if they worked, you think it would actually stay a pretty narrow section. But the reality is, is that we, don't, we, we have not exhausted the means by which we try to save ourselves. And so if we, if we approach a rule of life, well, this is just another self-help project. This is just another podcast or book. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to do the thing. And then I'm going to walk away from my life the same. But I would respond this way. A rule of life in, is different. And that first, it has its origins in the life and teachings of Jesus. And second, is that it's effective not because of our effort, but because it's a partnership with the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. What we understand about becoming more like Christ, we understand it's a divine human partnership. That 
You becoming like Jesus isn't a result of your action. It is initiated by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, it requires your partnership. It's why Paul is able to say, I worked harder than all of them, but not I, but Christ in me. That line between the activity of the Spirit and our human activity is blurred because it's a partnership. We are meant to partner with the Spirit so that we might become the people God has called us to be. Again, with a good gardener, a good gardener can't make it rain. He can't make the sun shine. What he can do is pull up weeds. What he can do is get rid of pests. What a gardener can do is partner with the natural activity of the world. He can't make those things happen, but he can make it more so that when it does happen, there's opportunity for flourishing. So too with our spiritual lives. Spiritual life is not a result of human effort. It's not a result of gritting it and bearing it and white-knuckling it through. But what we can do is say, God, send your Holy Spirit to work and move in me and then give me the courage and the bravery to respond when you do. To live in response to this activity, to come to these Sunday gatherings and say, Holy Spirit, I've met you here in the gathering of your people. Now help me go out there and Monday be the kind of person you've called me to be. So if that's what a rule of life isn't, let's get to what a rule of life is, down to the nitty-gritty. So a, a good definition I'll give you. A rule of life is a set of rhythms and practices that order our lives around the person and work of Jesus with the intention of helping us grow in Christlikeness and in deeper intimacy with the Father. Or as Dallas Willard points, points out, he says this, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I am not necessarily learning to do everything Jesus did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. Bit of a tongue twister. But essentially the point is this. As Christians, the the literal definition of a Christian in in the ancient Greco-Roman world is a, a little Christ that our lives should be reflective and everything we do in our lives should have its origin in how Jesus would do it. If Jesus was a freelance graphic designer, what kind of freelance graphic designer would Jesus be? If Jesus was a romantic partner, what kind of romantic partner would Jesus be? If Jesus was a parent, what kind of parent would Jesus be? If Jesus was a brother or a sister, you could fill in the blank, what kind of that would he be? That's what it means to have a rule of life, to ask that fundamental question and then say, God, what activities and rhythms can help me actually live that out? So it gets from simply a desire to be more like Jesus and an active participation in becoming more like Jesus. In Jesus' life, we see a life clearly lived with intention, a life oriented around intimacy with the Father and walked out with a clear understanding that one's life is a living sacrifice unto God. And so when we look at Jesus' life, we see several practices that ordered how he lived his life. And these are the practices we're going to go over in this series and in the good way. The first being a daily rhythm of prayer. Jesus lived his life ordered around prayer. Jesus was a good Jew, And so the Jews would have prayed the Shema three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? 
his life would have been ordered around the, the, the prayers of his people. We see a life, we often see in the Gospels, him retreating away to go pray and to seek God. In a moment of testing in the garden of Gethsemane, we see him praying. So a life oriented around the activity and presence of God is a daily, has a daily rhythm of prayer. We also see a life deeply rooted in the story of God. Now, notice there it doesn't say reading your Bible. Because a lot of people read their Bibles, but not a lot of people have their lives rooted in that story. It's easy to read the scriptures as an intellectual exercise, or maybe to see like, you know, if we, we try to go, it, to go to it in the morning and see if I could like pull out something I could apply to my life today. And then we get to like a weird passage of scripture and we're like, how does this apply to my life? I've never built a temple before. What does this mean? But no, no, no. The scriptures are fundamentally God's story he is telling about himself. In, 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 in philosophy, that would be called a meta-narrative. A narrative that kind of makes sense of all the narratives we tell ourselves and are told to us. The scripture is our meta-narrative. It, it is the narrative by which we live, which is, of, as a, which is of a transcendent God entering into creation so he might redeem it. So how will we live a life deeply rooted in that story? How will that story shape us? Number three, a regular rhythm of Sabbath rest. Are we living our lives from a space of generative rest? And everyone who's lived any five minutes in the city said, probably not. But it's possible to live a life rooted in rest. The Sabbath was a practice found in the, the liturgy and praxis, praxis of the Jewish people from which they rested for a day from their labors and circled their lives around the presence of God. What would it look like to have a regular rhythm of Sabbath rest that is restorative and prepares us for the life we are called to lead? A life marked by simplicity and generosity. How do we spend our money? How do we take the blessings God has given us and pay it forward towards others? Act, active participation in the family of God, which you guys are all embraced by showing up today on Sunday. How are we, how are we not just attenders of church services, but of actual people that lives out its life together as a family? A pursuit of wholeness and holiness. Notice the inclusion of two, of both. The gospel is not a call to be more than human. It is a call to be actually human. To be, become like the truly human one, Jesus. Which means being whole. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And to embrace holiness. This idea that my life is set apart for God. We see that in the life of Jesus. We also see a lifestyle of missional hospitality. Jesus often ate with people he shouldn't have ate with and shared drink with people he shouldn't have drank with. And all of that, all that his hospitality towards those on the margins, towards the other, towards the vulnerable and the oppressed, were his mission. It is why at the end of this service we will come around a table. This is the hospitality God shows towards us. How can we be hospitable in how we live? And lastly, a pursuit of justice and peace in our activities. 
How can we work for the shalom, the peace? How can we work for what is right and just in our world around us? These are practices we see active in the life of Jesus. And if we're going to actually live out and embody the gospel, actually be Christians, then these practices need to shape us. But more than mere aspiration, the question we ask ourselves is like, how am I actually living this out? And that's what it means to craft a rule of life. A rule of life is simply asking the question, when I look at these practices, where do I see it evident in my life? And if I don't see it evident, how can I include it into my life? How can I order my life around these activities so that my life might produce the activity and presence of God wherever I am? Now, in crafting a rule of life, there's two things of important to note. And if you're curious, we're going to be talking a bit more about this after service um, as like our little intro info session on the good way. But really, crafting a life, number one, it has to be shaped by your story. A rule of life isn't a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all approach to following Jesus. It's in our difference Christ comes to dwell with us, not our uniformity. So how we engage with these practices is going to look radically different for each of us. Your personality, who you are, your season of life, where you are, your faith journey, who you perceive God to be. All of these things are going to be different. My life is different from yours. Your life is different from your neighbor's. The call to Jesus is not generic good news for general people, but a specific announcement that God has come to you. And so that means how we live out the reality of the gospel is going to look radically different. And so we can't come to church and say, all right, cool, we need everyone to get on this program and everyone needs to look the same and act the same and talk the same. That's not how God shows up. God shows up and says, I will be one God to all people. And it's actually in this difference that I'm going to bring together. And actually in your difference, I'm going to mold together and shape the people I want to make. And so it's why we can have one body but many parts. We have one rule of life, these practices that kind of orient us. But how you live that out is going to look like your story. What would it look like for you to pray? What does it look like in your life to root yourself in the story of God? These is how, this is how we, as a community, don't just preach general news to you and say, yeah, everyone needs to be sort of the same. No, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is God has showed up to us, but he's also showed up to you as an individual. So how you live out your rule of life will look and smell and taste and all it would look like you but also too a rule of life is not some personal improvement project the temptation is to think that this is some solo private religious endeavor but saint paul notes this in ephesians the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles some prophets some evangelists some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the full measure of the stature of Christ. There's this implicit in the gospel story that God doesn't just save individuals, he also saves a community for himself. And that Christian growth can't happen isolated from others, but must happen within the context of others, because others have what you need And you have what others need. And it's together, in our difference, we come together and we are shaped by one another. And so it's why at Oaks Church Brooklyn, 
We have a, these practices mark our corporate rule of life as a church, but it's then embodied in your individual rule of life. And it's that interaction between this corporate sharing of these practices and our individual manifestation of these practices that we actually get the full maturity Christ longs for us to have. Just as a gardener or farmer consults the almanac, learns from his fellow green thumbs, so do Christians learn to mature within the context of Christian community. So this is why we've committed to embody this rule of life as a church. And part of being in the rooted community, our our kind of vision and version of membership, is that, hey, how can we share in the cultivation of the soil of your soul? How can we share in you becoming everything God has called you to be? Because unless you become that, we don't become the people God has called us to be. Because maturity is a communal project. It happens together. And so I'm asking the band to come join me. And it would be remiss of me to talk about a practical approach to Christian living without actually giving some practical invitations. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table and, 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 and taste of the blessings of God. But for this message in particular, I have three invitations. The first one is this. It's just a question. Are you living intentionally in response to Jesus' invitation to follow him? Does your soul look more like wild growth or does it look like a garden? When's the last time you cared for your soul? When's the last time you said, is my life oriented around Jesus? Or have I let it fall into disrespair? And listen, the point of that question is then not to judge and condemn ourselves, but to acknowledge that the Christian life is filled with valleys and mountains. And valleys come just as often as mountains do. And so sometimes we blink, we turn around, and we realize it has been a while since I've lived my life intentionally for God. Happens to the best of us. I think, I, I, part of the reason I think I became a pastor because it happens more often to me than I care to admit. And so the invitation is this, just the question. Are you living intentionally in response to Jesus' invitation? When's the last time you took like inventory of your soul to see if it's generative and growing and full of life? The second invitation is a call to action. If you want to begin living in this way, to have a rule of life, to orient your life, to root your life in these practices so that you might have a life lived around the activity and presence of God, then I want you to invite you to stay after service for the good way and just learn a bit about what this course over these next few weeks is going to look like. Because really, yes, this is an on-ramp onto like, if you ever wanted to be more involved in our community, um, an on-ramp into what, we, what you know, most people call membership, sure, I, that, that, that is one aspect and it's important. I think the more important aspect is we just want to make sure that you're living generative lives that we just can come alongside you and say, hey, listen, like, how's your soul doing? How are you living? Not for condemnation or judgment, but because we know that God wants to seed his life-giving presence in your life, and he wants you to respond to it. And guess what? That means we need help to do that. And so a second's a call to action. If you're interested in living this way with a rule of life that's helping you express out the reality of the gospel, then yeah, come stay after service. 
We'll be, we'll be so happy to process this with you. And lastly, my third invitation is this. For many of us, our wounds and our doubts prevent us from even considering an invitation like this. You know, I, I made the analogy between like a, a soul that looks like a garden, a soul that looks like wild growth. For some of us, our souls might look like deserts. And maybe it's because we've been wounded. Maybe it's because doubt has taken over. Maybe you've been stuck in a cycle of sin. Maybe we've tried this before at other churches and you kind of felt like you were left hung out to dry. And so you, responding to something like this would be a moot point because you just feel like your soul is barren. Like the sun is shining on it. The ground is dry. And what you need is not work to do. You just need rest and healing. I want to invite you to come up for prayer. If you're like, man, my soul is tired. And yeah, there's nothing green going on in that garden. And I'm not ready for a rule of life just yet. I just need to be rained on. I just need the dew of heaven. I would love to, I'll be up here. Our prayer team will be up here. And I would just love to pray with you. Because here's the promise of God. This is what Isaiah says, prophesying to an exiled people. He says this, don't you see it? There it is. I'm making a road through the desert, rivers in the badlands. I provided water in the desert and rivers through sun-baked earth. And that is God's word to you. If your soul feels dry and you feel like, man, I haven't seen the life and activity of God in my life in a while. God can work with overgrown gardens. He can work with deserts too. So we'd love to pray for you. So would you stand to your feet and allow me to lead us to the Lord's table together. <clears throat> On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and said this, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine, gave thanks, and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. In the next few moments, for those of you who have called Jesus Lord, I want to invite you to the table. If you're still like, man, I'm still on the fence of this Christian thing, I invite you to observe this meal and consider what it means. But Father, we now celebrate the memorial of your son. By means of this holy bread and cup, we show forth the sacrifice of your death and proclaim your resurrection until you come again. Gather us by this holy communion into one body in your son, Jesus Christ. Make us a living sacrifice of praise by him with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God. Come, receive.